This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Clinical Scenario 2 Evaluation and Treatment of Chronic Abdominal Pain in a Teenager by Dr. Neil Schechter. Hi, my name is Neil Schechter and I direct the Chronic Pain Program at Boston Children's Hospital. In the video you're about to see, I'll be talking to one of my patients about the chronic pain she experiences, which was the cause of her hospitalization. Please notice a few key elements in this discussion. Number one, the importance of talking directly to the patient while still involving his or her parents. Number two, sitting at eye level and conveying the idea that you're not in a hurry and are there to explain things thoroughly and respond to any questions. Number three, the value of having some personal knowledge of the patient to use in the discussion. Things such as school experience, pets, sports, other interests. Number four, the use of metaphors to help understand the complexity of chronic pain. It's clear that people are much more likely to act on recommendations if they understand the condition they have and the reason why the recommendations have been made. Most people's experience of pain is acute pain and it's often hard for them to realize that they, that they may have pain which does not represent tissue damage or disease. And finally, number five, the importance of summarizing the discussion and agreeing on a plan going forward. These concepts are important in any patient encounter, but particularly important in dealing with a child or adolescent who has a chronic medical condition. These children, despite seeing many other health professionals, often continue to suffer and typically feel frustrated and misunderstood and not infrequently feel made to feel that the pain is in their head. That's why the evaluation and explanation of the problem is often the first critical intervention to manage pain. Madison Taylor is a 16-year-old girl with a history of constipation and abdominal pain. Her pain increased dramatically and became intolerable four days prior to her admission for further workup. Dr. Schechter is meeting with Maddie and her mother in order to review the investigations and findings so far and put a plan in place moving forward. Hi, Ms. Taylor. Hi. Hi, Maddie. Nice to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Oh, sure. You ready to get out of here? Yes, yes. I'll bet you are. So our, our job today is to sort of um, put together all of the results of all the tests that you've had already and give you our sense of what they all mean and how we can sort of help you not experience the discomfort that you've been having over time. Excellent. Great. Great, thank you. Sure. So let's go through the tests that you've had already. So we did some blood work to look specifically for inflammation and to look for infection. And the great news is there's nothing abnormal in any of those tests, which is wonderful. Then we did a bunch of x-rays and scans, as you know, where we had to stick you in that machine. All of that came out completely normal as well, which is wonderful. We have the surgeons feel your belly because they're the ones who can help us know if there's a, some sort of surgical problem. And they also were confident that there wasn't a surgical problem that was going on, which is, is great. And finally, we remember how to pass a tube down your nose and or down your throat to, to sort of take a look inside your stomach. And all those results, again, are completely normal. Your intestines, your stomach seems to be working completely normally. And there's nothing that we find 
when we visually inspect that area that suggests any problem. So that's the great news. So what we know, though, is even that those test results were all negative, they do tell us something very important. And what they tell us is that the disease is the pain. Pain is the disease that you're having. It's not a progressive disease that you have that would get worse and worse over time. The problem is the pain. And this is something that we see pretty commonly in our experience, and it's the kind of thing that we have good strategies to help with. So I thought we'd review a little bit of what we understand about that now and give you a, a, a real sense of the kind of things that we can offer you going home from the hospital today, because you are going home this afternoon. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what pain actually is. And this is a confusing sort of subject, and it's really information that we've only understood in the past few years. We know that pain when has a very specific function, and that function is to alert your body that something is going on. You know how when you're, if you went skiing and broke your leg, then you wouldn't want to get up and walk on that leg because it would hurt. But if you walked on that leg, you would damage your leg even further. So your body has a way of protecting itself by telling you not to do this. Likewise, if you put your hand on a hot stove, your body would instantly react to that, right? And you'd understand that that, that was damaging you and you want to remove your hand from it as quickly as you possibly can. So we know pain has a very important warning function. However, when pain is around for a very long time, something we call chronic pain, which is kind of the situation that you're in, pain has lost its warning function. And what pain does at that time is something entirely different. It really isn't alerting you to that anything's wrong. It's basically like a false alarm. So it's like the pain of a broken leg, but there's no broken leg. Exactly right. Your body is saying to your brain, something is wrong, yet there really isn't anything wrong. And that is a condition that's associated with chronic pain. So what does that really mean? What does that mean? Well, we typically would say it would be like a false alarm in a, a car alarm, that your alarm is going off, you know how in the middle of the night sometimes you'll hear alarms going off and nothing is wrong. And similarly, we liken it to a computer where the software has a problem. I know you have a computer at home. Um, have you ever had an error message on your computer where it freezes? Okay. So when you get that sort of error message, the problem is really not with the hardware of the circuitry in your computer. The problem is really with the software itself. So the hardware in your body, stomach, the colon, the intestines that you have, is all normal. The problem is the nerves themselves, which are cranky and hyper-excitable, and they're what's giving a constant error message to your brain. But if there's nothing wrong kind of underlying, then how do you stop the actual pain? There's nothing to actually fix. Well, there are things that we can do about it because we do know what causes the nerves to get cranky and irritable like that. So let's talk about that for one second. We know that the nerves get cranky for a bunch of reasons. They get cranky because some people are predisposed to have that kind of problem because of genetics. I know, Mrs. Taylor, you have fibromyalgia, which has been a problem. I'm sure, do you take any medicines for that? I take Cymbalta. Yes, so that's a medicine that quiets those nerves somewhat. So one of the ways we know one of the things that causes this is the, the, um, the genetic predisposition that some people have. I know that your grandfather also has some stomach problems. 
And, and he probably has a similar sort of problem to what you have. So that's a pain vulnerability that we know that you, you have. Uh, so that's one thing. But lots of people have that pain vulnerability. What we also know is that what makes that worse, that brings that to the fore, what incapacitates you are a bunch of triggers that make that vulnerability much worse. Some of those things are constipation, bacterial overgrowth that are causing more gas, problems with sleep, problems with stress, problems with inactivity, problems with school. All those kinds of things can create trig or triggers that take that pain that's normally there and that vulnerability and make it much, much worse. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what we do about that. Yeah, Did you have a question about that? Exactly. What do we do to stop it? Yeah. I, I, I can't watch my daughter be in that kind of pain. Yeah. And I, she can't go through that. And I know that she's really been suffering with this, especially these past three days. Three days. But I do know also that it's been a sort of a chronic problem that's hung around for you. Maybe you don't see it that way, but we kind of have the sense of that this has a history a little bit. It's not something completely out of the blue. So what do we do about it? Well, there's a bunch of things that we do. We work on quieting the nerves themselves, and we work on the triggers. To quiet the nerves themselves, we have some very special medicines. Cymbalta is certainly a possibility, but in kids we find that there's some other medicines that work a little more effectively. The main one we use is something called amitriptyline. And that is an antidepressant medicine, but it really isn't working on depression. What it's doing is working on quieting those nerves. And that also has the benefit of helping you sleep at night, because I know sleep has been a little bit of a problem. Yeah. So amitriptyline will help with that as well. So one thing we want to do is quiet those nerves as best we can with some medicine. But also to quiet those nerves, we want to try something else. There's uh, a little gadget which is known as a TENS unit. Did you ever hear of that? No. Okay. It's commonly used on people who have back pain, but it, we also use it on the stomach as well. It's a little gadget about the size of a beeper that has wires coming out of it. And those wires are attached to little pads. And we put those little pads, stick them to your belly just around your pain. It's small and under your clothing, you don't even know that it's there. But what it does is when you turn it on, it sends a little wave out that causes a sense of vibration that occurs in the nerves between the pads. And that vibration sense overwhelms the pain sense. And so what you feel is the vibration and not the pain. And that's something I would wear under my clothes all the time? You wear it under your clothes and you turn it on when you need it. It's always there for you. It's pretty does it, cool. Doesn't make noise. Doesn't make any noise. It feels a little wacky, but it doesn't make any noise, and really no one will know it's there. Uh, and you can use it whenever you need it. It's something to put in that toolbox that, that we're creating for you to know that you always have in the middle of the night at other sorts of times. The medicines that you have been taking um, that overwhelm the pain in the hospital, the narcotics, the what we call opioids, the medical term for those, are really not the kind of thing that we can use at home. I know they've been somewhat effective for you, but in reality, they have all kinds of negative consequences. They cause you to be sleepy and dopey. Maybe you've noticed you're kind of sleepy in the hospital. So your mind isn't as clear as it could be. They actually cause constipation, which in your case is really going in the wrong direction completely. They have other negative consequences. They can even end up causing more pain in something that we call 
opioid hyperalgesia, which is the reverse of what we want to happen. And plus that, we just don't know when to stop them because your bowel is working the way your bowel is. It has its own sort of life. And to give yourself that kind of medicine forever really isn't the right way to go. So what we're going to do is fill up your toolbox with other strategies. So she's not going to take the narcotics that she's been taking in the hospital, which have actually been very effective. No, we're going to get rid of those medicines. We're going to give you today a very detailed explanation of the medicines that we'd like you to substitute for those, and those should work much, much better and gradually eliminate the pain and not just mask it. Right. So, she won't feel the pain. Well, she'll have some pain. Pain is sort of it's the last thing to go with this sort of problem, but we, we would hope it would be gradually getting less and less and less over time. And what she'd end up with is feeling much more functional, much better in many ways, and there still might be some residual pain, but you'll notice that will gradually, gradually disappear. Okay. So above and beyond the nerve dampening medicines, we talked about those triggers, and there's lots and lots of those triggers. One is the constipation itself, and we know that constipation in somebody with this sort of problem with that sort of cranky, vulnerable nerves can make things much worse. And um, so what we want to do is keep you, your stools as loose and soft as we possibly can. So I'm going to ask you to take a medicine called Miralax. I know you used it intermittently in the past, but I want to use it every single day to keep your stools nice and soft so that the cramping down of those cranky, cranky that bowel that's so cranky, that you don't feel as much discomfort with that. Okay, And we know that, for example, in individuals who have this kind of problem, if we put air in their colon, any sort of stretch makes it feel much worse. So we know that something like Miralax is important. But there's also some bacteria that sometimes overgrow in the bowel of people with this kind of vulnerability that cause gas, that also makes a stretch, that also causes pain. So we're going to give you, potentially, not right now, but in the future if things don't work, we have special antibiotics that can wipe out those bacteria that can eliminate that gas. Okay, so those are two things that we can do. For sure the Miralax now when you leave, but also potentially some antibiotics in the future as we see how things are going. The next thing we want to work on is sleep. Now I know the amitriptyline is going to help a little bit, but tell me about your sleep right now. Well, since I've been in the hospital, it's been better taking the medications and everything, but generally it can take me one to, I mean, two hours to get to sleep. I've tried reading and I play with my computer in bed, but, um, you know, it can take a long time and with the pain and then not sleeping, it just kind of becomes this cycle. And that, again, is very, very typical for kids who have this kind of problem. So sleep is a big problem. Uh, and, and when you don't sleep well, you don't feel rested. When you don't feel rested, you, you have a lower threshold for pain in general. You can't concentrate and focus. It's harder to do your schoolwork, which is more frustrating. And it becomes this cycle because we know that the more stress you have and the more worry you have, the more pain you have. So sleep is a big deal. So when it, we have a couple of strategies. And we're going to give you a little brochure when you leave on something which we call sleep hygiene, which is basically not that your sleep is dirty, but the fact that a way to help you with some strategies we know are effective. And those strategies are a couple of things. Getting into bed only when you're sleepy, because a lot of times um, if you get into bed and you're not so sleepy, it takes a very long time to fall asleep. Sometimes that may mean staying up very, very late. 
but that's what we recommend. We don't want you to have your phone in your bed either. I know that's going to be frustrating for you because most kids like to do that. But in kids in your situation, that ends up affecting your sleep much more significantly because what it does is make you excited and make it harder to fall asleep. But there's a lot of those kind of strategies that we're going to have for you in this little handout that we're going to give you. The other thing we want to do very much is, is start to reduce some of the stress that you're having at school. You're a junior this year? Yeah. Yeah, you're thinking about colleges now? Yeah, it's been really hard to keep up with um, kind of looking at colleges and all my AP classes and with SATs. And um, as I miss more school, it's hard to kind of catch up and keep up with it all. Yeah, I know that's... way behind at this point. And that's very, very stressful. So one of our jobs is to see if we can do about both reducing stress in general and in particular reducing the stress of school. Because we know that stress and worry and depression and anxiety, those kinds of emotional reactions to things or emotional uh, responses clearly have an impact very directly on the pain itself. There are chemicals, amazingly enough, that you make when you're worried or upset or stressed, and those chemicals actually have an impact on the pain message. So anything that we can reduce, we do to reduce that, is very helpful. And you know that that doesn't have any implication that this is psychological. What it just totally means is we're using every mechanism in our power to work on those nerves and reduce that pain. I did want to go back to one thing, which is, you said that, that the amitriptyline is an antidepressant. Are yeah. you saying she's depressed? No, we're not saying that at all. We, Does the, it create a depression? No, the doses that we use are much, much less than the antidepressant dose. Some types of medicines, some anticonvulsant medicines and some antidepressant medicines actually have a direct impact on the pain transmission in your nerves and has nothing to do with sort of reducing the depression because we don't think you're depressed that that's the problem that you're having right now okay so ways that we reduce stress are a bunch of different strategies but the main one is something we call cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and that's a strategy that a psychologist typically does and there are specially trained psychologists who work on reducing stress and reducing pain and I've given you a list on the handout I'm going to give you of some of the folks in your community who we've worked with in the past who do this kind of work and they can work with you. We estimate four to six sessions teaching you a bunch of these strategies, biofeedback and hypnosis and meditation and ways to help you with sleep and ways to reintegrate you into school. And we think all of those things will be very, very helpful to you. Speaking of school. When is she going to be able to go back to school? And what do we do today when we go home? So school is a big problem because obviously the more school you miss, the more stressful it is for you, the harder it is to get back, the harder it is to talk to your friends about what was going on. Do you have a strategy of what you typically tell them? I guess I'm just one of those weird kids that misses school a lot. <laughs> so that's a very typical scenario again. So our goal is to get you back to school, but to get you back to school in a way that helps you reintegrate to school, because we know it's very hard when you've been missing a lot of school. So the kind of things we're thinking about are creating a, a way to get you gradually back into school, have tutors for the work that you're missing, but get you to school every single day, to give you refuge in the school nurse's office when you need to, to give you a reduction of your class load, all kinds of things that we can do using something called a 504 plan, which is a, a legal kind of document that we have for kids who have physical problems that allows them to accommodate to their school day. 
The key, though, with all of this is that you go to school every day, even if you're feeling kind of crummy. If we need to reduce your day, we can do that. If we need to find other kinds of ways to make it more comfortable to get back to school, we can do that. But unless you have a high fever, we need you in school every day. I know it's tough. It's tough. But we're going to work together on this and figure that out. But the key is to be in school every single day. And you've been, we know that you can get through, even if we need to make your day, have your day, for example, we know you can get through a morning. So we'll get through that morning and then fill in the rest of the time. But the key is that every single day you get to sleep at a reasonable time, you wake up at a reasonable time, and you get to school every single day. Well, another big thing um, for me is sports. I used to play a lot of sports and be really active, but with the pain I've had to really kind of pull back from that, is that something that I'm going to be able to start doing again? That's a very good question because that's another critical part of this. We know that lots of kids who have this kind of problem end up reducing the activities that they used to love to do and things that brought them pleasure and they have a hard time doing them. They can't run. They can't. I know you're on crew and I know you can't do that right now. Um, they can't do a lot of things that brought them pleasure in the past. And the less they do, the more their muscles ache, the harder it is to get back to doing what they like to do before. There's no real reason physically why you can't do these things, but we do know that when you don't do things, your body becomes deconditioned, the muscles start to ache. So we're going to suggest resumption of your activities in a kind of different way. We're going to ask somebody who's an expert at helping you get back to things, a physical therapist, to go through with you, find out where you are right now, your level of fitness, and gradually help you work from there. In particular, we're thinking about a kind of swimming program called aquatherapy that will get you your muscles going again and they'll be less achy in the beginning. So we're going to recommend that. I'd like you to walk your dog on a regular basis too. I know that you haven't been doing that as much as you had in the past. Well, I know that you, your dog would like that and I know that you'd like that also if you gradually got out. Sure, my mom would like that. Yeah, I bet she would since all the burdens falling on her. So what we would start to do would be to gradually have you do it for 10 minutes at a time, say, and then add, and we have something we call a 10% rule, which is sort of add about 10% a week so that you gradually do it, you don't overwhelm your system, you pace it appropriately, but you can gradually get back to doing what you like. Okay, so what we've talked about then are a bunch of things. The problem you have is called irritable bowel syndrome, and it's the result of some cranky nerves that you've inherited or are genetically just a part of your makeup, which lots of people have, but made worse by the kind of in, by a number of triggers that are making those cranky nerves worse that brought you in the hospital at this time. And those are things like infections and fevers and things like uh, infections and inflammation, which we know you don't have. But they are things like constipation, which is a problem that we know you do have right now. And so we're going to work on that with some Miralax. We're going to address the bacterial overgrowth if we need to. We're going to help you with sleep with some sleep hygiene strategies. We're going to get you a psychologist who's sophisticated in this area who can help you with what is known as CBT and help you sort of gain mastery and gain control of those nerve messages. And we're going to start you back to school in a carefully orchestrated way so as not to overwhelm you. And finally, we're going to give you some strategies for, to get your activity back. And with all those kinds of things, we're certain, very optimistic, that you're going to get back to being the wonderful kid that you were and get back to the life that you've been missing, this, especially this difficult junior year. So school isn't going to be today or this week. 
Yeah, so we'd like her to get back to school as we as soon as we possibly can. What I would suggest that you do is start and go into have a meeting with the school and have a five what's called a 504 meeting, and we can help orchestrate that and develop a program that feels easier for you to get to back to school. I would say right now, given the way things have been going, we'll get you back half time, and then we'll add an hour or two every week over time, but with all kinds of supports and structures in place for you. Okay, so I'm planning to see you um, in two weeks in my office, and we'll do it after school so you don't have to miss any school. And, uh, but we'd like you to call in about two or three days and give us some sense of how the amitriptyline is helping, as well as helping you identify some of the other uh, or tools that we've suggested. Okay? Okay, so when we go home today, we're going to have a prescription for amitriptyline, the stool softener, and someone's going to show us how to use the TENS machine, and we're actually going to have one to take home, right? We're going to get one of our own, okay. And then you're going to put us in touch with a psychologist. And pretty soon she's going to be able to go back to school on an adjusted schedule. So she'll start out slow and then move up to it. And she'll be able to take rests at school. And she's actually going to get to go back to sports slowly but surely. So she'll get a physical therapist that's going to help her do that too. And I think that's it, right? Okay. Thank you very much. Great to see you. Bye-bye. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.